What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. They tell you what we're up against? Something about some psycho assassins? We're outside the law on this one. So if you come with us, you're a wanted man. Yeah, well, what else is new? What else is new? Good question, Paul Rudd. Psycho assassin sounds new. <laughs> Rudd with Chris Evans there in Captain America Civil War, the third film starring the star-spangled Avenger in the I couldn't even begin to tell you how many a film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's what Matt Singer's for. Our review of Civil War, plus our summer movie preview and more ahead on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is presented by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Available at Mubi right now is The Best of Youth. This is a modern art house epic that was awarded at Cannes, originally released in two three-hour parts. Follows the rich Italian tradition of classics like The Leopard, I Do Love The Leopard, and Rocco and His Brothers. This traces the story of a family over several decades, so you can see some of the comparisons there. Mm-hmm. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile app, you can download films to watch offline. Film Spotting listeners can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Filmspotting. That's mubi.com slash Filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting, summer movie preview pop quiz hotshot. Which of these summer movies is a fake? All right, go for it. No cheating here. Blackway, in which a retired logger helps a young woman being harassed by a psychopath cop. Haven't heard of it, but okay. The Last Heist, in which a bank robbery goes wrong when one of the hostages turns out to be a serial killer and turns the tables on the robbers. That's new to me as well. Or... Nine Lives, in which an uptight businessman finds himself trapped in the body of the family cat and must learn to be more human to escape, Josh. (laughs) Which one? one, That one's got to be fake because I believe Tim Allen has retired. (laughs) I mean, really, it sounds like a Tim Allen movie. I was going to go with a black way just because retired logger. (laughs) (laughs) There are not enough retired logger movies. Here's the good news. They're all real. Good They're news. all actual movies. That is good news. Who knows? One of them might just show up during our summer movie preview later in the show. We'll also set up our Nordic Cinema Marathon and spend a couple of minutes on the Key and Peele comedy, Keanu. But first, after the disappointing Batman v Superman, can Captain America Civil War make American comic book movies great again? How dare you. Captain, while a great many people see you as a hero, there are some would prefer the word vigilante. You've operated with unlimited power and no supervision. That's something the world can no longer tolerate. I know how much Bucky means to you. Stay out of this one, please. You'll only make this worse. You saying you'll arrest me? There will be consequences. Captain. You seem a little defensive. Well, it's been a long day. If we can't accept limitations, we're no better than bad guys. That's not the way I see it. Sometimes I want to punch you in your perfect teeth. 
It's a fairly long walk, Adam, from the Navy Pier IMAX Theater down all the way to the end where the WBEZ studios are, where mm-hmm. we're sitting right now. And uh, that's the walk we just took after the Captain America Civil War screening. But it wasn't long enough for me to come up with a really clever or elaborate introduction to our review. So let's just jump right into it. Okay. And maybe start with the way that this movie, similarly to Batman v Superman, tries to address the question of innocent bystanders who are killed in these superhero movies. It's something that critics have complained about for a few films now. I don't know how much it registers for general audiences, but it's something that the movies themselves have begun to reflect upon. Batman v Superman, I found very lightly did it at the beginning and pretty much dropped it. It's a bit more of a through line here in Captain America Civil War as the UN is essentially trying to assert control over the Avengers because of a number of recent incidents that have resulted in civilian deaths. And Mm -hmm. how you want to even describe those uh, collateral damage, civilian casualties, manslaughter victims. I mean, it depends on how you're looking at all of the violence that's taking place in these films. I, I think what's interesting about this is that it's both a moral question and an aesthetic question when it comes to these movies, because clearly what they're asking narratively is what is the motivation for these heroes? Are these heroes if it's resulting in civilian death? But for me, almost as interesting has been what does it mean formally for all of these superhero movies to climax as so many of them have in giant buildings falling down Mm -hmm. and CGI rubble erupting all around us beyond the moral consideration, which maybe we'll get into. Let's start with just the aesthetic one. Yeah. Has Captain America Civil War been able to avert that when addressing this issue and given us something a bit more interesting in terms of the physical confrontations of its characters? Yeah, I think it did. And as you noted, we literally just came from the movie and we always say we're still processing. But when the movie is two hours and 40 minutes long or whatever and has a fair amount going on in it for a superhero movie, there is a lot to consider and chew on. And I do think that that's one of the strengths of this movie. As I look back on even the movies in the MCE that I've been a fan of, and I've said this before, never in a million years as a young kid who read comic books did I ever envision that the two or two of the three best movies made about these superheroes would be Captain America movies. Never thought that would happen. By far, to me, the least interesting character, Hmm. the least interesting superhero. Now, of course... I learned a little bit over the weekend there was some TV special on, I don't remember the name of it or what, but it was about Jack Kirby and Joe Simon and the guys who created the character. And I learned a lot of the backstory. And of course, he became a much more interesting presence to me. I didn't really dive in that much when I was a kid. But this movie, which definitely is a Captain America movie, I had to remind myself of that a few times because of the way it's been marketed so much as an Avengers movie and how you can't help but escape the fact that there are 20-something Avengers fighting against each other. In this film, it's still at its core a Captain America movie, and it's about his internal struggle and the journey he takes. And one of the things I noted about Captain America Winter Soldier is the what isn't as significant to Captain America as the why. And I think you really see that play out in this film. And to get back to your key question, even those movies I've liked have ended with big, chaotic disasters. They have. The Winter Soldier does. And I immediately start to tune out when that happens. And this is one, without spoiling anything, and I think 
Let's just blanket statement right now. We're not planning to spoil this movie. We will not say anything that we consider to be a spoiler sure. in deference to anyone out there who can't help themselves and is listening, even though they haven't seen the movie yet. It doesn't end in that way. doesn't mean it doesn't end with a lot of action. And it doesn't mean there certainly isn't a lot of action throughout the film. In fact, I would say, despite all the talking and all the emotional and psychological turmoil that's on display, there might actually be too much action for its own hmm. good. It got to a point where, okay, really, we're going to have another 20-minute extended sequence? I, it was a little bit What sequence would you take out initially, though? Because I, I don't my know. instinct is to say the same thing. Yeah. But when I think back about each of the action set pieces, I think works in a, in a different way really well. So I don't yeah. know what I'd lose. No, I agree with you that on their own, they all stand out and I think they work. But there was a part of me that felt a little bit burdened by it. I, I just felt like I had seen enough fighting, even though I hadn't seen that same level of chaos, for lack of a better word, that I had seen in all these other films, where it just seems like the filmmakers are actually trying to wow you in a way it just overwhelm you with all the destruction and right you don't get that in this film even the key sequence the airplane hangar sequence it's been teased a million times they do a pretty good job of keeping everyone in their space and making it about the individual battles but still tying it into the larger collective so i thought for the most part the aesthetic angle worked and i want to actually volley it back to you by asking you if there was any movie in particular or any movies that this film did remind you of because as much as I enjoy what the Russo brothers are doing as the directors here and I think it's their own vision you can't deny that one of the things that's most fascinating about the Winter Soldier is they made a 70s sure paranoid conspiracy conspiracy thriller and here I was really wrestling with it Again, haven't had time to think about it, but the way they use titles on the screen, the way they even look, the movie it reminded me of in a way was Children of Men. That was the only movie I could come back to. And there's something even about the scenes we do see that involve destruction. There's kind of a gray palette to it. There's a sense that this is a little bit of a dystopia the way Children of Men is, but not so far off that we couldn't find ourselves, you know, in some kind of situation like this. It feels of its time, yeah. but also projected in some kind of abstract fantasy, obviously, that isn't our real life. And I don't know if that was deliberate or not, but that seemed to be the way they were going. Yeah. I, it, Children of Men didn't come to mind. Uh, honestly, the one I kept thinking about is like, this is this is the good Avengers sequel, because I enjoyed the first Avengers. I know we split on that yeah. one a little bit, but the second one I just got worn down by. Mm-hmm. And this was watching this, I felt, especially in that sequence you talked about where both camps of Avengers are facing off near the hangar. That is what I felt Whedon, Joss Whedon, wasn't able to pull off in the climax of Age of Ultron. Now, partly it's because he was crumbling a lot of buildings and yeah. that's not happening here. But it was also the negotiating of those individual battles and showdowns and moving us from one character to the other without letting us forget. I, I never forgot who was off screen during this sequence. Yeah. Whereas during the climax of Avengers Age of Ultron, they they just flitted away. And yeah. now some of that may be because of characterization, performance. I think a lot of credit has to go to the directors, the brothers here, Anthony and Joe Russo, who just have a knack for putting their characters in space and moving among them and cutting to them at the exact right time. Now, the irony is Whedon has built up for them 
so much of the character building, right? So it's yeah. almost like serving them these characters to then put in space the way they can do it that you have to give credit to Whedon for that. And so, let me just jump in, though, and say that, yes, I agree with everything you're saying, but there are still moments where you catch yourself where all of a sudden they cut to the vision and you're like, oh, I haven't seen the vision for three minutes. What's he been doing? Or you see the Scarlet Witch and you're like, oh, yeah, we kind of haven't seen her for a little while. I didn't what have could she possibly time, be doing? I still had a few of those moments. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was much more in tune with this movie than I was with Age of Ultron. I certainly was as well. So I think, you know, it does avoid the destruction of buildings cliche because I think the action gets smaller. Mm-hmm. And more personal until we're really down to a three-way fist fight for the climax here. Mm -hmm. And again, it's really impressively staged is one way it works. It's also impressively shot the setting where they have this. I'm trying not to give anything away. Right. And it's just kind of microscope down. So we're we're able to focus and we're able to feel the punches in a way that we don't in these other climaxes. Now, as to the larger issue of what is this movie saying about the the cost of avenging, okay, Mm -hmm. of destruction, to pursue destruction or not, I don't know that it offers anything really meaty or gives it certainly doesn't give us an answer but i think it is huge that a big blockbuster hollywood film like this is even pausing to acknowledge it and you could say batman v superman tried to acknowledge it it in its beginning and Mm -hmm. i thought that was one of the most interesting parts of the film but it abandons it Mm -hmm. this movie wrestles with that question throughout and interestingly offers different answers depending on the different characters right you meet and how they respond. And not just Captain America and Tony Stark, who are the main two combatants here, but also you hear from someone like Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man played by Tom Holland. He gets a couple scenes here. I'm ready for a new Spider-Man movie. He steals the show here. I'm the guy who's been saying like, Let's. I'm happy with the Tobey Maguire movies. Just let me have those for maybe another 10 years, but I'm ready Forget now. That. But it's not just that he's charming and no. funny. It's also that he gets to weigh in on why does he fight crime? Mm-hmm. You know, Tony Stark asks him, what, yeah. what's in it for you? Why do you bother to do this? And his answer doesn't have anything to do with this worldwide conspiracy no. that the others are embroiled in. Mm-hmm. But it speaks to that. And it speaks to the question of should they keep avenging, even though they put people at risk. Doesn't answer the issue, but gives us another way to think about it. I think that sets this apart from so many of the destructo mega blockbusters that we get. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you. And my favorite scene with Spider-Man actually might have been just this throwaway moment. It's part of this larger scene where he is talking with Tony Stark in his bedroom. And it's just the little cap on the scene where he's sitting down, Tony Stark is standing next to him, and he says something like, this is where you move your leg, Uh, I'm going to sit here. And the thing I liked about it is this movie has, for this big, big budget, action-packed movie. It makes time for little human moments, and Whedon was good at this. He was very good at Throughout some of those films as well. We split a little bit on which of the Avengers movies we like better, though I didn't love either of them, but there are some really nice moments here, and what I like about that is it almost felt to me like the Russo brothers kept in something that was probably a goof. Oh, yeah. It, it, it felt reads, very unscripted. It reads like Robert Downey Jr. was saying to the younger actor Had to who, be. who needs a mentor and is looking at Robert Downey Jr. like, oh, my God, he's Iron Man, just like Spider-Man is yes. in that scene. And 
the blocking, either he forgot what to do or Robert Downey Jr. is just kind of giving him an order and saying, this is what you're supposed to do. I like that little touch. And I'm with you that you could oversell this movie. It's not a Bergman movie. It's not at the end of the day really probably intended to make us walk out and wrestle with our deepest existential fears. But I'm with you that the fact that it gives those elements as much time as it does. Some of the things I scribbled down as I was watching the movie, it seems to me this movie fundamentally is really about guilt. Mm, How many superhero movies really at their core are about guilt and they're about the bargains you make with yourself? And we see so many characters in this film. You talked about it with Spider-Man, right? Even he gets a moment where he has to articulate the bargain he's made, the deal he's made with himself to justify doing what he does. Every character in this film, pretty much every character in this film, has that kind of moment. I think it's also very much a movie that is about how we process death, how you respond, how you can let anger, how you can let vengeance or grief consume you, and it can lead to bad things, or you can perhaps harness that for good. But the fact is the movie does make you think about that. And we get a scene that seems like this really crazy moment of technology where we're supposed to just be in awe of what the filmmakers pulled off, which is they give us in an early moment in the film, totally not a spoiler, Robert Downey Jr. as if I was watching weird science all over again, right? (laughs) It's a teenage Robert Downey Jr. on screen in front of us. And you're thinking, what could this be about? Don't reveal what what it is, because that's kind of fun to to discover that. But I'll just say that it sets up this larger question, I think, which is, As we think about guilt and as we think about how we process death, it really is about the fact that we can't do what Tony Stark maybe can do, which is reframe our past. It talks about reframing the future. That's a line in this film. But we're not able to reframe the past the way he is in that moment. And dealing with the guilt of that and how we're haunted by that, that really is at the core of this film. And without it, without the Russo brothers devoting as much time to it as they do and making these characters seem like characters who could almost be in an Alfonso Cuaron film and not just in a big action spectacle. That's what separates this movie from so many other movies that are even part of this universe, but also so many movies that just come out in the summer. You know which character these ideas of guilt and and even death too kind of circle around is the new character of Black Panther, played by Chadwick Boseman. He's from 42 and Get On Up. He is excellent as well in this. I mean, you got to start to think that casting is the secret weapon of of the Marvel Studios films or the cinematic universe at least that's what it seems like to me but yeah Bozeman is is good here and this character is dealing with the death of a family member that's related to what's going on here again mm-hmm. don't want to give too much away so he's almost caught in the middle and um, is dealing with these exact same questions also great in terms of an action character. Mm-hmm. I mean, to have there's this one chase sequence between Bucky, who's really good back as the Winter Soldier, yep. Sebastian Stan, Stan, and Chris Evans as Captain America, and then Black Panther. This they spoiled this chase in an ad before the movie, mm-hmm. which I, I ended up closing my eyes because they were inserting scenes from this chase sequence into right. a car ad. And yeah. I thought, I haven't seen this before. I don't want to see this for the first time. as part. So I just shut my eyes. And then I was thinking of the damn commercial as I was watching that's it. That's what I wanted to avoid. Yeah. So it, that's one of those sequences that is just so But I do good. want to buy it. See, I was trying not to say the car. I'm not <laughs> going to give them the credit. 
We'll, we'll bleep that, hopefully. But that's a, that's a great sequence, too. I mean, there's so much good hand-to-hand combat. You know what they do really well, which <laughs> sounds kind of silly, but you notice it in some of the, the Bond films have done this, Daniel Craig Bond films yeah. and the Bourne films. They really know how to film leaping. I was going to say, leaping that's my, and jumping. my favorite moment in the movie might be when we see Bucky jump out yes. a window onto a rooftop. And the fact that it feels just like something out of the last Born movie we saw. It's it really all does. in terms of, of space and yeah. positioning and knowing when to cut and what to cut back to. We're never lost or confused. No. We have an idea of height. We have an idea of how far they're going to fall, how far they're leaping, and that makes it part of the wonders because no one should be able to leap and land and roll like that. And that's a conceit that they go – it's because they have these characters like Black Panther. That's one of their skills. Yeah. And uh, they go to that a number of times and it it never failed to be fun for me. No. It's a movie that references at one point directly The Empire Strikes Back. And, of course, I don't think that was by accident, that by the end of this film. And I'm not sure it actually delivers on its promise. I'll say that in a more oblique way. But That particular touch, you mean? That, well, the way it ends, just the tone that it ends on. Okay. But I will say that it seems like they're deliberately trying to make this The Empire Strikes oh, Back in saying. the series, right? Narratively. It's, narratively, yeah. it's ending in the bleakest way and... Again, not a spoiler because we know it's a movie about the Civil War. It's about them tearing each other apart. Clearly, things aren't going so well for the Avengers. So like Empire Strikes Back, it's the one that needs to be the darkest in terms of making us feel like there's no hope. And somehow are they going to be able to go on? How are they going to put together the pieces? So they set up nicely where this franchise obviously is going to go. And we were talking a little bit about some of the questions it makes you think about or the positions. The big thing about Batman v Superman at the end of the day was nobody bought, including myself, why these guys were fighting each other. Not for a second. The movie simply didn't make us believe it. It's stated reasons, but it didn't fill them out. You don't believe it. Right. And you really believe it here down to even the fact that William Hurt plays the Secretary of State, I I believe, in this film. And he could very easily... And William Hurt very easily could have played the bad guy, chewing some scenery, who maybe is a guy who he's thinking about the country first, but we're meant to see him as an adversary. And I'm watching that first scene with him where he's laying out his plan to the Avengers of what he thinks they should do, what the compromise is, how their power needs to be reined in. And I'm thinking, he's pretty reasonable. (laughs) This guy actually makes a lot of sense. He's not that kind of traditional warmonger character we've seen in a lot of these movies who we instantly think must not have their best interests at heart. I actually understood where he was coming from. That's the thing. At the end of the day, you know, the whole irony of the Team Cap, Team Iron Man thing is, I think by the end of this movie, you know where you should stand. But for a good chunk of this movie, I don't think most viewers probably know which side they should stand on. The fact is the movie lays out both sides effectively enough. Yeah, it's not because it's, it's not a choice. It's, a, it's an impossible choice. It's complicated. It's not murky. Yeah. 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 And and Batman v Superman was, was murky for sure. Yeah. I still say that Paul Bettany and the vision is wasted. You could, Just use, in you general. could use more vision? Well, it's not so much like you could use more vision, but they don't do the, one of the with things them. I'm going to do when we're done babbling here is I'm going to look up the vision because he's a superhero I know nothing about. Okay. But he seems 
almost godlike, right? He yeah. seems invincible, and yet he doesn't do anything in this movie that would make you think he's a character of any consequence whatsoever. That, well, he that can he's disappear really, and float through people, uh, that's Adam. It. What more do that's you want? That's all he can do is he could go through people. I mean, Ant-Man has more to do <laughs> than the vision. That just seems wrong. Okay, but the trick of these confrontation-type movies is always, and this is something that I think Civil War pulls off better than Age of Ultron, is it's not who is the strongest, right? Who can punch the right. hardest. It's what are they going to, how are they going to use their powers in a given second Agreed. to upend the other person? And I think, Vision works well enough. In well, that. the oh, answer yeah. is to mostly try to make us forget that he's there. <laughs> that's how I that's how I see the vision. The only thing that disappears quicker than the vision, though, is Elizabeth Olsen's Russian accent. Yeah, that's she is. You know, that character is fine. And but it is sad to see her after Martha Marcy May Marlene, you know, to think that that's the same actress who is now not to denigrate this part necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's probably not the best part in the cast. She, she brings has. a depth to it that other actresses might not. You just think about what else she could be doing, right, is yeah. the problem there. So I would say that's a weak point. I mean, we haven't really talked about stuff that maybe we didn't like. I don't know if we don't that's have anything. all I got. But <laughs> the vision and the Russian accent, well, which thinking, I don't even care about. I'm thinking about what you said about uh, if, if the action sequences are too much. I mean, I, I would just advise, which I almost always do, not to see it in 3D. Um, and I think the IMAX screen combined with the 3D really worked against what the Russos were trying to do in terms hmm. of staging because I like the screen. I like the fact that sometimes the camera would pan and my entire head would move with the frame yes. and I felt like I was really scanning the frame. But those a lot were in the elements. static more static scenes like the climax right. where it has this excellent setting that I was mm-hmm. referring to. They use the whole wide screen yeah. there and there are characters each on one end and it's very symbolic. That I liked. But when some of the early chase scenes like through a market, mm-hmm. at first I thought, oh, is this bad shaky cam? And then I realized, no, they really are using the camera intelligently and cutting in the right places. But the problem is I've got it coming at me so big and in 3D, it's just not the right venue. So, I I mean, I would I would just try to well, see it straight up if you can. Absolutely. I would always recommend that. And it wasn't really bothering me until we got about halfway through the film and I started noticing how often the frame seemed really fuzzy to me. Mm-hmm. And it's something you only get because of the 3D. That's right. It's just not as sharp. It's just not as crisp. It's, of course, a little bit darker. darker. Yep. Why you would want to watch a movie like that, I don't know. So that is something else that stuck out to me. And the other thing in terms of a negative that we really can't get into is as much as I enjoyed the battles and as much as we both agree this movie did an amazing job of making us understand why the people are squaring off against each other. The movie does ask us at the end of the film to buy a character motivation based purely on emotion that I didn't quite buy. All right, you're going to have to let me know what that was okay. off air. We'll do that in some spoiler content down the road maybe, and I'll tell you off air, Josh, Captain America Civil War is out now in wide release. I mean, it might be playing on the wall in the alley next to your house. It's, hopefully not an IMAX. Hopefully not. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Now, Josh, I did see at our screening tonight Tasha Robinson and one Scott Tobias from the Next Picture Show podcast. And I know it's still a couple weeks away, but their next set of episodes, unless something drastically changes, and I don't think it will, that double feature is going to be 
inspired by Civil War. So maybe we'll find out what movie this movie really is indebted to. Depending the on what I'm, they pick. I'm trying to think of, depending <laughs> on what they pick. So I don't know what's swirling in those great cinematic minds, but they are planning to discuss Civil War and another film on the next picture show. If you haven't already subscribed to that podcast, we recommend that you do. You can find it in iTunes or learn more at nextpictureshow.net. They're also on Twitter at nextpicturepod. Up next for us is the film spotting poll. We're asking you to pick your favorite buddy slash crime comedy pairing. Plus, I caught up with the Key and Peel comedy Keanu and have a few thoughts, mostly about how adorable that kitten is. Stay with us. appears intent on colonizing the sky, Mrs. Royal. And who can blame him? When you look at what's going on down at street level. The German press say he's a genius. Ha! Germans. Hmm. We're award-winning. You can't argue with that. This is film spotting. Now picture everyone in that clip dressed up as an 18th century French aristocrat. Guess at a costume party in that scene from High Rise, a dystopian satire from British director Ben Wheatley. High Rise features Tom Hiddleston, Elizabeth Moss, Jeremy Irons. It's based on a book by J.G. Ballard, who also wrote Crash, which David Cronenberg adapted. It goes into limited release next weekend, but it's currently available via On Demand and iTunes Rental. And our plan is to review it on next week's show. I have seen Ben Wheatley's Kill List you still haven't caught up with that one, Josh? I have not seen anything of his. Wow. Is this, is this his third film? I think it's his or, third. Okay. High somewhere around his there. third. Yeah. Okay. And Kill List, I'm still haunted by certain images from that film. Okay. Creepy, creepy film. And I don't know how much I like it, mm. but it's something. It is something. And I will give Ben Wheatley that. And that's just one of the reasons why I am intrigued about High Rise beyond the fact that it has a great cast. Yeah, as that's well. an amazing cast. We have passes. If you are also intrigued by High Rise and you are here in the Chicago area on Tuesday, May 10th, there's going to be an advanced screening of it. You can enter to win those passes now at filmspotting.net. That's also where you can enter to win passes to see The Last Days in the Desert with Ewan McGregor playing both Jesus and the Devil. That opens May. 13th as well. And this set of passes, Josh, is for Last Days in the Desert during its run of engagement. So you can use that pass anytime during its run here in Chicago. As always, stay tuned to filmspotting.net if you're in the area and you want an opportunity to win passes to see movies, usually in advance, free screenings. Who doesn't love free advanced screenings? We've had a lot of those lately, and we will have more to come. I also wanted to promote something coming up that I'm really excited about because John Sayles was one of my early cinematic heroes, one of those fathers, godfathers of American independent cinema. And really, Lone Star, I think it was a film I saw in college 
was the first Sales film. Yeah, that's that what I was going to ask. Which one did it? Well, Eight Men Out, actually. Okay. Before I knew who John Sales was, that's a movie. It was just the movie itself. Yeah, that, I saw yeah. that back in high school, and being a baseball fan, I really liked that movie. But the first film where I knew it was John Sales was Lone Star, and I loved that film, and that sent me back watching a lot of his stuff and watching future releases of his and he's one of those guys I always wanted a chance to talk to and I'm going to have that opportunity and it's going to be public I'm actually going to be moderating a Google Hangout Q&A with sales Thursday May 12th at 5:30 p.m. Central so Time So anybody can anybody, log on to this as far as I know can log in to the Hangout and watch and maybe submit a question though a lot of the questions have been submitted in advance already and I'll be throwing in a few of my own, but this is all put on by Olive Films, which is a local Chicago company. We've mentioned them on the show before, Josh, because they are the distributors of the Blu-ray of Elaine May's A New, New Leaf. Leaf. yeah. And they were nice enough to send us a couple copies of that. Well, they're the distributors of the Blu-rays of Baby It's You, his 1983 film starring Roseanne Arquette, and Eight Men Out. So Olive Films putting on this Q&A. We'll link to more information in our show notes, whatever information we have about it. Of course, I would recommend following Film Spotting on Twitter at Film Spotting and also over at Facebook. We have a page there. We will keep you up to date as best we can on information about that Google Hangout. But I just saw Baby It's You over the weekend, and it certainly made me reappreciate Rosanna Arquette. I think it's easy to forget how good of an actress she is, and this is an early performance from her. And the title, this is one of the things I want to ask him about, the title suggests this sort of classic romantic comedy. It's about mm-hmm. two teens growing up in Jersey, kind of from different sides of the tracks, and you think they're going to make this connection and fall head over heels in love with each other and the rest of the world and their ambitions be damned, right? And it actually ends up, I'm not certainly spoiling anything here either, but it ends up being a little bit more of an anti-romantic comedy. And if anything, it ends up being a film that is more about how they just desperately, more than anything, don't want to be their parents. Mm. It's about upward mobility in an odd way. And in that sense, it fits in with Sales' larger body of work. It's a really wonderful film. And again, I'll talk to Sales about that on Thursday, May 12th. So I think we're ready to announce our next marathon. We've been talking a little bit about this, a lot of research behind the scenes, which one it was going to be. We had listeners vote which one they'd like us to do next. And we are going to do our Nordic Cinema Marathon, Contemporary Nordic Cinema, I think we can call it. And this is, again, you guys have been doing these. You and Sam started these way back at the beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. Just attempts to fill in the gaps that we all feel we have in our cinematic knowledge, whether it's a filmmaker or a region, as we're doing now, or a genre. And this time, we're going to Nordic Cinema. Yeah, and after that, Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'll finally (laughs) get to see Thor 2, The Dark World. So stay tuned for that. Can't wait. Seriously, though, one listener did point out that we should have gone with a Fay Ray marathon or director Nicholas Ray following our Elaine May and Sachet Ray marathons. Those were the two most that, recent. That would have been nice. And coincidentally, Nicholas Ray on the docket. When we get done with this marathon, we were planning to go back to a classic Hollywood mm-hmm. marathon. Nicholas Ray, one of the prime contenders for that spot. We did leave this one up to you. We gave you a vote against some Chinese language options and contemporary Scandinavian cinema or Nordic cinema did win out. We always intended to include Finnish films in this marathon, specifically the work of the director Aki Karasmaki. But it turns out that Finland is not technically Scandinavia. This is where we open it up to 
Nordic cinema and, well, you got to include Sweden, Norway, Denmark, maybe even Iceland. You and Sam, very wary of the Icelandic contingent of film spotting listeners. We don't want them to rise up and protest. Icelanders. Icelanders. Very angry people. You want to make sure to include them. I mean, really, it'd be the only nation we leave out, so we've got to do at least one Icelandic film. Okay, so here's where we stand at this moment. Six films, four countries, four directors, spanning from 2000 to 2015. So that's where you get the contemporary. The first film, we are going to open with Songs from the Second Floor. That is from Sweden. Roy Anderson film from 2000. Karasmaki, a big reason why I want to do this marathon. Roy Anderson, the biggest reason why I wanted to do this marathon. We will then go with a Karasmaki film next, The Man Without a Past, followed by another Anderson movie from 2007, You the Living, and then Suzanne Beard, the Danish filmmaker, her movie In a Better World. Back to Karasmaki with La Havre. And our final film, 1001 Grams, this from Norway, Bent Hammer, his 2015 movie. But we think we are going to include an Icelandic film, and we want to hear from our Icelanders. Give us your recommendation. We will certainly consider it. And in case you didn't follow all of that, the key takeaway, the first film, will be next week. So you have time to prepare songs from the second floor from Roy Anderson and We will also, on our marathons page or at filmspotting.net, we will list all of these movies and the order in which they will go. We'll also list where you can find them. And I'll just say this for now, that they are all available. I believe all of them, the six we mentioned, at minimum are available via Netflix DVD. Mm -hmm. There are four of the six that have other options, including Amazon, iTunes. One of them is on Hulu. So fairly easy for most listeners to access these movies. But those Roy Anderson movies, Songs from the Second Floor, the first one, and You the Living, those are the two that are only available via Netflix. So if you're not a Netflix subscriber, you might have to go to your local library. Which has worked for listeners in the past, so don't forget about that. And work for us as well. Again, complete info on this and previous marathons, just go to filmspotting.net. It's right there if you click on the marathons link. Go. What? Go, it's recording. Hello, you've reached the Nice Guys Detective Agency. Do you believe your daughter's new boyfriend is up to no good? Has your loved one gone missing? Mm. If so, then the Nice Guys Detective Agency is here to help. We cover adultery, missing persons, small crimes, and occasionally murder. Leave us a massage after the tone. Message. All right. Your handwriting is terrible. A teaser there for the new film, The Nice Guys, starring Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe. I could say more, Josh, but... It might be spoiling my top five as we get into our summer movie preview here in a little bit. The Nice Guys is the latest from Shane Black. He's the guy who basically invented the buddy cop genre, at least the modern buddy cop genre as we think of it. He was the screenwriter of Lethal Weapon. He also wrote and directed Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Iron Man 3. The Nice Guys opens in a couple of weeks, and we are planning at this time to get to a review of it. But in the meantime, we're going to ask you to name your favorite buddy crime comedy pairing. And we were thinking of pairs here that were similar to the nice guys the relationship maybe pretty split between a nice guy and a heavy and they are out there trying to solve some sort of crime or mystery josh the options are here's who we've got de niro and groden in midnight run which i believe is a pantheon film it is is. not an esteemed pantheon film that's right colin farrell and brendan gleason from in bruges Mel Gibson and Danny Glover going back to Lethal Weapon here. How about Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte? Another, an even older one, right? 48 Hours. Yeah. And a little more recently, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost from Hot Fuzz, the Edgar Wright film. Just for you, Josh. Here it comes. (laughs) 
I like Hot Fuzz. I know, but I'm thinking of the one that follows Hot Fuzz. Okay. Yeah, this is kind of the odd one, isn't it? Bob Hoskins and Roger, as in Roger Rabbit. Yeah. From Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I guess that makes sense. It does. Who's the heavy? It's got to be Hoskins. It's got to be. And we will, as always, give you the other option in case there's someone we overlooked. And we almost certainly are overlooking one or two or 20 good pairings. You can vote now and let us know who we missed in the poll comments, please. If you do, let us know where you are listening from. That poll is at filmspotting.net. And we mentioned the Pantheon with Midnight Run being a movie that is in the Pantheon currently. We promised Josh this week that we would also reveal the results of another film spotting poll that's been up for the past couple of weeks, where we announced what Film Spotting Madness 2017 would look like. We gave listeners the option between an actor's The Actress edition, 32 actors pitted against 32 actresses, or we take the Film Spotting Pantheon, those 40 or so movies that are in the Pantheon, 45, I think, at least, and it's always growing and certainly will grow over the course of the next year. We get it up to 64 movies by including some of the films that have been part of our Sacred Cow reviews here over the past few years. We get to 64 all-time classic amazing titles, and at the end of it, only one movie is left standing. We'll spoil the results a little bit here. We'll dive into this in feedback on an upcoming show, but it is going to be that Pantheon edition. That's definitely where Without we're Without a doubt. Yeah, it ran away with the poll results. It's also the one we're most excited about. But I do want to point out that Sam came up with a really great option. And other listeners have written in with some good options, but I think Sam did come up with the next best option that probably could be Film Spotting Madness 2018, which is Heroes versus Villains. Oh, that's very good. 32 great cinematic heroes, 32 great villains. Hero and, bracket yeah. and then a villain bracket. That's right. So and they, they, they face the off I as they it. should at the end. That one's going to be tough to beat for a future Film Spotting Madness. So stay tuned for more on that. Of course, Film Spotting Madness will be a lot of fun. If the film is by Wes Anderson, then it will make his list. Or from Pixar or Disney, well, you get the gist. But heavy-handed messages really aren't his thing. Time for Larson Recommends on Film Spotting. Well, that music can only mean one thing. Josh, you're here to recommend a recent release. I am, and it's one I'm glad to say was on my most anticipated of the year list, Keanu, the Key and Peele movie, because a lot of times those most anticipated films sometimes don't even get released in the year or... They come out and they're not very good and you're kind of embarrassed that you picked them. So in this case, my faith was borne out. This is really funny and in ways that I didn't expect. I knew they would be smart about the code switching humor that they're very good at in their show about the way basically identity politics, the way we all wear different faces in society depending on what group we're with at any given time. And they particularly as African-American comedians will play out how they have experienced this. So in Keanu, they play with this in the fact that they're two friends. Rel is this single movie nerd. And then Clarence, he's his cousin actually, is this uptight family man. So these middle-class guys. And when Rel's kitten, newly found kitten, who has just changed his life because the thing's just so cute. It is so perfect. And, and you know what? I like dogs, so I'm not really a cat person. I'm allergic to cats, and yeah. I still fell for this Yeah, kitten. I don't really like cats either, and I would totally take Keanu. See? What is the magic of Keanu? I, I think it's the music. I'm letting on to the fact that I saw this movie, too. <laughs> you did. 
<laughs> I think it might be the music. I'll, I'll get into that. But, okay. but basically, Rel then has his apartment ransacked, and it turns out that Keanu's been kidnapped by drug dealers. So this sends the two of them out of their cozy middle-class existence into what you could call New Jack City gangsterdom. And in fact, the gangster played by Method Man does rename Keanu New Jack. Uh-huh. There's a lot of really fun movie references in here, too. So they have this comic identity politics stuff going on that's really good and smart. But I did not expect this to be the best Michael Bay movie parody I've seen since Pain and Gain. <laughs> I had so much fun with this element. And uh-huh. the music is part of that. Whenever Keanu shows up on the screen, did you notice that you get this kind of really emotive synthesizer? Mm-hmm. Think about every hokey emotional moment in right. a Michael Bay movie and the music that's behind it. That's what you get when this kitten shows up on screen. And sure enough, one of the composers here is Steve Jablonski, who did Transformers and some other <laughs> Bay films. Really? So, so they knew what they were doing. But these action scenes, Peter Atencio, who did a lot of the Key and Peel episodes, I think almost all of them for their Comedy Central series, is the director here. They are such a pitch-perfect parody of these Michael Bay and also John Woo shootouts. The opening action scene is in a church. Yeah. But instead of John Woo doves, you have this little kitten like scampering in slow motion amidst the bullets. I and like that moment. They would send, you know, you get bullet holes and the sunlight comes streaming in through the holes beautifully like it would in a Michael Bay film. And there are a number of scenes like that where they play with these action cliches as well and have a lot of fun with it. So you know, I think it's one of these uh, really, really smart, dumb comedies that I, I just, I, I love. Hey. Cute cat. Uh, yeah, this new Jack right here, man. Yeah. Hey, but look, before y'all go run off and do your little thing. Where'd you get him? <laughs> How much you want for him? You serious? Actually, he is, man. We we in the market right now for like a gangster pet, so. Man, do I hate to rain on your Larson Come recommends Come on, how could you not like Keanu? Key and Peele, I think, have, without a doubt, some very good movies in them. Keanu, Josh, is not one of them. And <sighs> it disappoints me greatly to say that because I'm a big fan of their stuff. But I disagree with you. I don't think it really works as an action comedy. The cat running bit in the opening scene that is inspired that really is but it doesn't match that at any point throughout the rest of the film and i don't think it really works as an action comedy satire or pastiche either it doesn't do anything interesting with those conventions at any point in this film and your comment about the identity politics i mean that's right on in the sense that that is what is at the core of this movie and i think it's at the core of their best stuff on their tv show i sent you and sam a bit that i rewatched today that still cracks me up every time I see it. And the name of the skit, what they call it is I Said Bitch. And it's a skit where two guys are friends, wives, the couple comes over, the wives pair off and go their way and start talking, the guys start talking, and they start talking about their wives and all the things that annoy them. And then, well, they suggest that this is how they talk to their wives. When they need to put her in her place, they say this. But of course, you get that great pause before they say it and they get really quiet because you know that they're lying, that they would never say that. They would never be strong enough to say that to their wives. And I think what that sketch suggests, what this movie suggests, is this idea that the harder you are, 
the more of a man you are and maybe the blacker you are. I mean, that's what this film is really getting at. And I think that obviously in this sketch I'm talking about, there's an emphasis maybe more there on masculinity than blackness, but they're tapping into something fundamental there. That's what is at the heart of their best comedy. And it's not, Josh, that I think all married men secretly wish they could call their wives that word, but there's just that fantasy element of men wanting to feel like they're in charge, right? That they're beholden to nobody. And this idea of what you said, how you position yourself to your friends is not always the way you position yourselves when you're with your spouse or you're with your kids. It's a brilliantly hilarious sketch. I'll link to it in our show notes if you haven't seen it. But imagine that sketch stretched out over 90 minutes. You'd get Keanu. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. And this doesn't either. This doesn't either. That's the common gripe when people jump from even, you know, an SNL sketch to... I wish it wasn't true here, but every scene feels padded here. Every scene goes on too long. No, they've got... It does not go on too long because they have their dynamic on full display. And these guys know how to work together so well that every interruption is in place, every comic beat, every punchline. So I didn't get tired of seeing them do that over and over and again. And I think where it expands, here's where it expands to me, is... Is it's just not these two guys who are involved in these identity politics. If you look at every character, just about every character, there are two who I think this doesn't apply to in the film. They are pretending to be someone else to put on yeah, another persona. Totally. So you have someone like Will Forte's neighbor, the pot dealing neighbor, who's like a pseudo Rastafari. He's pretty funny. He's he made me funny. laugh. Yeah. And even you know the the gang members that they fall in with, and they have to try to prove they're gonna they're tough enough, and they go along mm-hmm. on a ride with them. The movie pauses to reveal that each of these guys and one woman has you know sort of a a brutal backstory right. why they are posing as well yeah. and they do this too in funny ways and and one of those members even has yet another identity we yeah. find out later on Anna Ferris is doing identity politics by She's playing herself a like deranged version of herself mm-hmm. i think Clarence uh, played by Keegan Michael Key i think his wife is maybe the one character who stays true to her identity throughout. She's played by Nia Long, and it's a little bit to do with that sketch you're talking about. At one point, he calls her from a club and starts talking to her in his other guise, and she just Uh calls him out right away. She's like, why are you talking to me like that? You've never talked to me like that. And I think it's played for a laugh, but it also gets at what's going on for all of these characters. So I don't know. It also, when she reappears, it goes for a really easy laugh. Oh, I love when she reappears. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, no, it didn't really work for me. That's the bottom line. And I'll repeat, I do love Key and Peele. I mean, they make me laugh. Their show and the sketches I've watched on YouTube a thousand times, like most of their fans, they make me laugh harder than probably anything going these days. I can't think of a comedian or a TV show that actually makes me laugh out loud the way they do. It went away pretty quick in this movie, Josh. The laughs for me really ended about halfway through and it's a disappointment maybe they'll get you with the next one maybe they will all right are you sure that nine lives cat movie you mentioned at the start is real (laughs) no i'll read anything (laughs) sam puts in my notes so well i have other questions too about the summer movie season we're going to do our top five questions about the 2016 summer movies when we come back stay with us
quick interruption here, folks, as we get to a few donations and a couple notes this week. We wanted to start by mentioning our featured artist is Montreal's Besnard Lakes from the new album, A Coliseum Complex Museum. The band just played here in Chicago earlier this week at the Empty Bottle. They're going to hit Cleveland, and they're going to be in Vermont, the rock mecca that is Vermont, this weekend before heading to Canada for some dates. Josh, you may have seen this on Twitter. Listener Dave Coletta, a while back, shared an image with us, but I have failed over the course of some of these segments to bring in another Lego contribution Oh, this day, yes. So we've got from one listener previously a great recreation of our studio here at WBEZ uh-huh. based on pictures. And it comes complete with an Adam and Josh sitting in their chairs with coffee mugs, even though I don't think either of us have ever drank coffee while no. taping this show. A Lego Mountain Dew maybe would be that, more that appropriate. But Dave Coletta wanted to add to the collection. And I wanted to show you here, Josh, people can't see this, but you can, you can react. You'll never, you'll never oh, wow. be able to tell which one is me. And, oh, I, I prefer this version <laughs> of you, the one-eyed I'm, version of I'm Josh. I'm missing an eye. You're, what happened? You're missing an eye. What? Well, it's, it's in here. Now, maybe, wait a minute. Maybe this is just how I prefer to think it's, of you. I think you, an I think Igor-like you keep these character. at home. And after our recording, you go home and you like throw pens at my Lego face until my eye falls off. When you say something just really misguided (laughs) and wrong, which is always, I I go take it out on my Lego like like a voodoo doll figurine head. That's how that's how I use it. I think that's still a little disfigured. My right eye, but they look hurting lately. You must have been punching it. (laughs) We will we will link to these giant Lego heads of Adam and Josh, a picture of those on. Film spotting Those are in our great. show notes if you are curious. Dave did send us a little card. He said, just a little something to say thank you for keeping the film spotting faithful, informed, and entertained. Bum, I'm missing the 2015 rap party, but I guess there's always next year. He was hoping to make it at the last minute. I know Dave had to back out. My only complaint, aside from the eye that you've replaced, is I look a little jaundiced. <laughs> I suppose that's true. But you do. I don't feel that bad. You look as beige as this studio. We get to our donations. We have a new Buck a Show donor. He is Jeffrey Wedig in York, Pennsylvania, and he's got a little plug, and Josh, he earned it. Need to pay the dealer for all the great reasons why I love the show, but I also have an ulterior motive by hoping you might mention a documentary I'm dedicated to that tells the story of a sailor I know. Matt Rutherford is a modern-day adventurer, and he's an extraordinary guy I've talked with on my sailing podcast, The Escape Pods, a few times. After a two-year trip on a 32-foot boat to Europe and such, he came back and needed something more. He decided to sail around the Americas solo and nonstop for a charity in Annapolis called Crab, which gets disabled folks sailing. He did it in 309 days in a 27-foot donated sailboat of questionable foundation. The doc was recently released on PBS Nationwide, as well as being on Vimeo and DVD via the sailingchannel.tv. Since then, he has started a nonprofit research organization that has him and his partner sailing on extreme voyages on small boats, collecting data on the environmental impact on the world's oceans. Thanks so much for keeping up with the podcast. Even though I don't see half of what you guys talk about, I love the conversation. So it sounds fascinating. We'll put those links in our show notes if you are curious for more. Thank you, Jeffrey. 
New $5 a month donors, Robert in San Gabriel, California. Jack in Milwaukee, also a new subscriber. He says, I was inspired by March Madness to become a monthly subscriber. As I discuss the matchups with friends, I realize how excited I will be next year when it starts again with a new list. A new $10 a month donor, Ryan in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Josh, we got a gold level donation from Philip in Chicago. A $2 a show donation. Actually, he says, here are my top five reasons why I'm grateful for film spotting. One, rigorous structure of the show. Two, Robert Brisson, film spotting marathons as introduction. Three, chemistry and love between hosts. Four, the horror, the joy of film spotting madness. And five, somehow agreeing with both of you even when you disagree. Yeah, I don't know how we pull that off. Is that possible? I don't know. Apparently. Apparently, Yeah. Thank you to all of our donors. And again, we'll remind you that there is a no-cost way to help support the show. You can rate us on iTunes. It actually does make a difference. You don't even have to leave a comment. Just leave us a star rating. Every little bit helps. Hi, this is Andrew Stanton. I'm the director of films like Finding Nemo and Wally, and now John Carter, and you are listening to Film Spotting. I know who I am. When we are finished with you, you'll no longer be yourself. I remember. I remember everything. Welcome back to Film Spotting. The sounds there of the new teaser trailer for the upcoming Jason Bourne. It was my number three most anticipated movie of the entire year, 2016, Josh, when we shared that preview back in January. We, we did to think, set aside some major titles, right? Yeah, that's that we true. would like Scorsese. That may be and... more boring, but. I love the Bourne franchise, and I'm genuinely excited about this film, and I'm even more excited after seeing the trailer. But this top five that we're going to do isn't just going to be us listing the top five movies we're most excited about. We've done that before, and it can be fun, but we really are just going off of sometimes teasers or we're going off of just a cast list and a director, and maybe not as interesting as it could be. That said, do you have... Quickly, Josh, some titles. Do you have maybe a quick top five that if you were just going off of, I could only go see five movies this right. summer, which are the five you'd go see? What's your list? Yeah. In coming up with the questions we were going to ask, I, I saw everything coming out and right. here are the five that jumped out. Kubo and the Two Strings mm-hmm. is a new stop motion film from Leica. They did Coraline, Paranorman, and Box Trolls. Yeah. So I enjoyed those films. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to that. I realized for the first time, Michelle Gondry has a new film coming out, mm-hmm. Microbe and Gasoline. This sounds Adam, like, you can't wait for this. Friends on a road trip across France, they're in a vehicle they built themselves. Very be kind rewind aesthetic. Yes. Whimsical. I'm I'm sure uh, you'll be there with me. <laughs> Number three, Hunt for the Wilder People, a new one from Taika Waititi. Oh, yeah. The director of What We Do in the Shadows, right. which we both loved mm-hmm. from last year. The Lobster has been mentioned and long awaited on this show. <laughs> like for three years. Yes. From Dogtooth director Yorgos Lanthimos, a cheat. I have seen this and would probably have it now as my number one most anticipated to see again. Okay. But I am going to put at number one the BFG, which was on my list for the year. This is one of the big ones for the whole entire year, Spielberg's Roald Dahl adaptation that I've been looking forward to. Okay. Well, real quick, five honorable mentions. I also am curious about Kubo and the Two Strings. I like Paranorman. I like Coraline. I didn't actually see all of, I think, the box trolls. Another one. You'll get to it. I started and stopped somewhere along the way. The Family Fang really interests me. The Jason Bateman, Nicole Kidman movie, just an interesting premise that you can 
Google. Lo and behold, the Herzog movie, which also got mentioned on that earlier preview. Maggie's Plan, the new film from Rebecca Miller, because it's a film from Rebecca Miller, and also it stars Greta Gerwig and Ethan Hawke, and A Bigger Splash, which just on the title alone, before I knew anything about it, I wasn't interested in. Just the title is horrible. Splash sequel, clearly, right? I do love Splash, so you'd think that would excite me more. But then I saw a preview for this over the weekend, and it's from the director of I Am Love, a gorgeous film that I really enjoyed from a few years ago. That starred Tilda Swinton. This stars Tilda Swinton as, I suppose, a Bowie-esque rock star. Ray Fiennes is in it. My favorite actress, Dakota Johnson, is in the movie. So I really do want to see a bigger splash. Now, the top five, though, at number five, I have High Rise because I'm sure a thousand people have called it this, but it's Snowpiercer in a skyscraper. Really? I, mean, I didn't that's realize what it looks that's like what we based were in on, for. I mean, based on the plot description. I haven't description, seen the trailer. Well, I haven't either. But just based on okay. the plot summary, it sounds to me like Snowpiercer in a skyscraper. I'm in. And I'm all in. My number four, I'm going to skip for now because it's going to get mentioned here in a moment. Number three, The Neon Demon. This is the latest from Nicholas Winding Refn. Mm-hmm. Great concept. Set in Hollywood. Seems like it could be great. Jason Bourne at number two. And number one, there it is again, The Lobster, the movie I am most anticipating. But... As we joked, we've been talking about The Lobster for at least two years here on previews. But it finally has a legitimate release date. I believe it is sometime this month, during the month of May. We'll see it here in Chicago and in other select cities. So those are the movies that we're most looking forward to. But there are many, many others. And we certainly have some questions about this movie season. Josh, kick us off. You haven't mentioned any of the films I have questions about. So that's good. Okay, good. This will work well. My number five question is, does Swiss Army Man really exist? Because I'm not convinced yet. Yeah. I've seen the trailer twice now. Still don't believe it. I still don't believe it. This is the movie with Paul Dano as a, a suicidal man stranded on an island, and he comes across a corpse, played by Daniel Radcliffe. He apparently embraces the corpse as a friend and then imagines that they have all sorts of adventures together. Get to the flatulence, Josh. Well, yeah. So at Sundance, right, this is when I first heard about it because it became infamous as Daniel Radcliffe's farting corpse movie. Because of one unfortunate moment that is in the trailer, we do get to see that. But really, for me, even more baffling is this shot later in the trailer where Dano appears to be riding on the back of Radcliffe as he zooms across the water like a dolphin. As you do. So this is the life I've forgotten. This is just the beginning. I guess they're going for, this is one marketing tactic, right? Just just baffle people to such a degree that they say, I've, I've just got to go see this thing for myself. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to be one of those people. I might let you be one of those people. Uh-huh. And let me know. It's it's opening, though. It really is opening July 1. Somehow, I mentioned 10 movies and had no overlap with your questions. You mentioned five movies and no overlap as well. How about so that? So far with my top five. My number five question for the movie season centers on a movie, Josh, that my apathy level was already pretty high. But I'm even more apathetic about the talk surrounding this movie. And it's so high, I really did almost kick it out of my top five because... Why? Why even bother dwelling on it here? But the reality is, I think we're going to have to reckon with it, whether we like it or not. And my question is, will Ghostbusters be significantly better than its Mm. terrible trailer? And this was 
spurred on a little bit by the stories that came out this past week. I think it originated with Screen Crush, and I'm just going to read from it here. The Ghostbusters trailer currently has 507,610 dislikes on YouTube. To put that in perspective, the Fantastic Four trailer from last year has only 20,175 dislikes. The Ridiculous Six trailer, which has an impressive 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, has only 5,803 oh, dislikes. That just reminded me I have to watch you do Ridiculous Six. Can't wait for Larson Recommends. Could <laughs> Ghostbusters be that much worse than either of those two movies? It seems unlikely, knowing what we know about Fantastic Four and Ridiculous Six. What is actually happening is that a certain subset of people on the internet have an unhealthy fixation with hating on the Ghostbusters remake and are teaming up to downvote it into oblivion. So that came out at the end of last week. And just in a matter of five or six days, it's gone from 507,000 dislikes to like 625,000 dislikes. Now, this doesn't mean anything. And we know that at the core of it, sadly, is this kind of misogyny where there are a bunch of actual human beings out there, human males, who are really distraught about the fact that Ghostbusters were remade with four women instead of four men. I can't fathom that. But I can't fathom that either. I mean, can you imagine meeting a person who feels that way on the street? Yes. This many of them? No. Right. <laughs> well, it certainly should go without saying that I'm not against watching four women play Ghostbusters. I'm not even against, Josh, the movie being remade. My favorite childhood movies being remade is something I came to terms with long ago. I don't know what would have made the trailer better. I, of course, don't know what the content of the movie is. Maybe it's all the CGI on display. Maybe it's the absence of any legitimate laughs. But I kind of want to have some faith in Paul Feig. I certainly want to have faith in Kristen Wiig and Melissa McCarthy and Kate McKinnon, I think, has proven herself as the heir apparent to Kristen Wiig on SNL already over the course of a few seasons. I think Leslie Jones is funny as well. We'll know when this movie finally comes out on July 15th. It's a class four apparition. That's okay. She seems peaceful. My name is Erin Gilbert, doctor of particle physics. <laughs> That stuff went everywhere, by the way, in every crack. Very hard to wash off. Yeah, it's it's just one of the why would you root against this one? Right. You know, that's what that's what I don't get. I mean, unless you're opposed to all remakes of your childhood movies, which maybe some people are, but this is yeah, this is really baffling to me. My number four question: uh, Will Suicide Squad write the DC ship? Hmm. Now, whatever you think of Batman v Superman, and we're both on the record, we. Didn't think much of it, as most critics did not. That's not the way Warner Brothers wanted to kick off their version of a cinematic universe, right? I mean, it was the critical derision, okay, they could probably live with, but even the box office has been weakening each week, if not plummeting, after that first weekend. So this is not how they wanted things to go. Now, you think it's too late for the Russo brothers to remake Batman v Superman? <sighs> that would be nice, wouldn't it? would it? be. Yeah, well, Suicide Squad, I think what they're going for here, and I'm not familiar with the original comic, but it suggests to me something like DC's answer to Guardians of the Galaxy. Some, a cheeky, maybe lighter romp. It involves a band of antiheroes who are joining together for this common good. And I just wonder if DC has the sensibility for that. I mean, Batman v Superman weighed like 20 tons, so you have to think not. And then look at the writer-director too. Is David Ayer not exactly known for a light touch? He wrote Training Day. Directed End of Watch and Fury. That was the World War II tank drama. I did hear good things about Fury. I haven't seen it myself, but still doesn't suggest something like Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, 
On the other hand, Suicide Squad has Will Smith. It has Margot Robbie. And I think these are two performers who've proven themselves capable of comedy. So if we're giving Ghostbusters a chance, let's give this a chance. We'll see what happens on August 5. Yeah, I'm not all that excited about it. And I'm even less excited after I heard somewhere recently that they basically went and punched it up, maybe had to do some reshooting to try to make it more like Deadpool. So you get that sense watching the trailer. They Mm -hmm. really emphasize the humor, the sarcasm, the wit of it, similar to Deadpool. But it worries me, I guess, that they felt like they had to push that back into the film. Yeah. And it wasn't there to begin with. We will see there are some talented performers in that cast. My number four question is, and pardon me, this is the only one I will put in the third person. Will Scaredy Cat Adam finally see a Purge and or a Conjuring movie? So I've seen the trailers for both of these recently, and I've not seen any of the previous Purge movies. There's been two or the previous Conjuring film. The Conjuring 2 is coming out, a movie about these paranormal investigators. In the first movie, they help a family who has this presence in their farmhouse. And it got an 86 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, Josh, a 68 on Metacritic, a couple Comments here from some very good critics. Justin Chang from Variety said it was sensationally entertaining, one of the smartest, most viscerally effective thrillers in recent memory. Josh Rothkoff from Time Out said, like the wood grain farmhouse itself, a beautiful piece of production designed by Julie Burgoff, The Conjuring has an analog solidity that makes the terror to come almost unbearable. And Manola Dargis in the New York Times said, the dread gathers and surges while the blood scarcely trickles in The Conjuring, a fantastically effective haunted house movie. Joe Swanberg, the filmmaker... He had it as his number two movie of 2013. He also had Pain and Gain, I think, in his top five. So you can't listen to a underestimating Joe Swanberg. (laughs) But you know who else you could have quoted? You could have quoted me. Really? Yeah, yeah, big fan of the. You also had Pain and Gain in your top five (laughs) of 2013. So that's meaningless to me. But. You liked it too. I did so quite you were a bit. On board. Yes. So pro conjuring. The conjuring has a lot of pros, and I'm not immediately drawn to the trailer. It doesn't seem to be doing anything unique. It seems to be trading in the stock kind of gotcha scares. Yeah. This one directed by James Wan. But based on the pedigree of the conjuring, maybe I should break down and see both films. And then we get to the one that I think is more interesting potentially, The Purge. And it's more interesting potentially because the concept itself is so great, right? It's this perfect kind of sci-fi dystopian premise that Shirley Jackson might have written about, though it might not have felt science fiction. Ray Bradbury would have written about it where it's this America that has crime problems and overcrowded prisons. And so the government says there's going to be a 12-hour period every year where you can do whatever you want, including murder people. And the first film, which had Ethan Hawke in it, It was really about his family in their house trying to survive, from what I understand. The Purge Anarchy came out a year later. Same basic idea of a group of people trying to survive the Purge, but they were on the streets instead of inside a house. That one got better reviews than the first one did, which, as far as I can tell, didn't get good reviews at all. Now comes the Purge election year. I guess the police sergeant character from The Purge Anarchy, the second movie, is now head of security for a woman who's the frontrunner for president. And one of the reasons she's the front runner is one of the key platforms she has is she wants to eliminate the purge. So obviously timed to be at an election year. Yeah. We have shamelessly exploited a woman who is a front runner for president. It feels like it's ripe for some good social and political satire. Maybe this third movie will be the one that will satiate both audiences and critics. 
I'm curious about it. I don't know if I'm curious enough to actually take the plunge, but that's why it's a question. The soul of our country is at stake. The purge targets the poor and the innocent. The Senator's going to win. She's going to make real changes, too. It is a night that is defining our country. It's time to do something about that, Senator. The purge has to come to an end. You take a lot of risks, Senator. I have to. I was the only one in my family to survive. I saw the trailer for this before, I'm not sure what it was, but... I really like how shamelessly exploited yeah. it appears to be. I'm kind of a sucker for that. So I don't know if I have to go watch the first two Purge movies. Probably not. Or if I not. can just jump in on this one. But yeah. I, might, I might do that. Well, I should point out, I think we've been failing in this regard, Josh, that The Purge comes out July 1st. The Conjuring 2 is slated for a June 10th release. All right. My number three is a smaller film. Another one that I found out about just in looking up what the schedule is going to be this summer, it's The Founder. And I'm wondering if The Founder is going to be able to do justice to its inspired cast. This is a biopic of sorts about McDonald's founder Ray Kroc. And there's interesting creative talent behind the camera. A big fan and the wrestler screenwriter Robert D. Siegel did the screenplay. The rookies John Lee Hancock directs. But mostly, I'm intrigued by the cast. You've got Michael Keaton as Ray Kroc, and then Nick Offerman and John Carroll Lynch as the McDonald Brothers, whose California Burger Restaurant was the foundation for the company. So Offerman, of course, is from Parks and Rec. Mm -hmm. And John Carroll Lynch is one of those, uh, he's a that guy. And so good in just about everything, has been in so many movies, ranging from The Sublime in Zodiac to uh, something that wasn't so great. The recent The Invitation I caught up with, and he's Everybody interesting. Everybody likes it, but you, Josh. I know, well, no, people came out of the woodwork saying, finally, oh, yeah. this is not as good as mm. everyone's been saying once I stepped out there bravely out uh-huh. and took the hits. It's what you do. <laughs> somebody's, you know? somebody's got to. Yeah. John Carroll Lynch, he's good in it. So love this cast. Also has the always great Linda Cardellini in mm-hmm. there. Now, of course, you need more than a strong cast, but this is certainly a good start, and the founder is opening on August 5. My number three question of the summer movie season is, which movie will delight and disturb the most, Wiener or Wiener Dog? <laughs> <laughs> and Wiener is the Anthony Did Wiener. one of your kids come up with this no, question? No, I'm very proud did of this you give, question. Did you give and this assignment fact, to the family? The fact that you're mocking me just proves how good it is, Josh. <laughs> Wiener, of course, is the documentary that I didn't know was coming out until I did this research about Anthony Wiener and his comeback campaign and how it completely unraveled. Wiener Dog is yes, the latest tell. film do from tell. Todd Solons. That's right. And it's an unofficial, some might call it a spiritual sequel, <laughs> Come on. to Welcome to the Dollhouse, though the Don Wiener character now somehow is grown up and not played by Heather Matarazzo, but played by Greta Gerwig. Didn't really see that transformation coming. But if you weren't sold on Solons and Wiener Dog, Josh, I'll quote to you from IndieWire's summer movie preview, which I think just came out a few days ago and is focused on indie movies. They say the outrageous premise of Todd Solon's sprawling tragic comedy suggests Robert Brisson's Ahazard Balthazar. What? What? If, You've got my attention. If the titular donkey were swapped for a dachshund and the realism gave way to droll existential despair. Oh, I've imagined so, that many times. There you go. Instead of following a donkey, it basically follows the dog as it goes through a series of owners and various troubled owners. And when I say delight and disturb, I mean disturb in the Elaine May sort of disturb where 
I'm so uncomfortable. Cringing. I'm so cringing yeah. at what I'm seeing on screen that I'm probably covering my eyes because I just can't look anymore. I think you're going to get elements like that in this Todd Solon's film because that's what you get from mm-hmm. Todd Solon's. But also the Wiener documentary where you're watching this congressman's 2013 mayoral campaign and the cameras apparently had all this access, Josh, and they are getting the moments where it's happening as he himself is being confronted with all this evidence of his social media gaffes and all the mistakes he's made and realizing that he can't really lie his way out of this. We're going to see that on screen. We're going to watch those uncomfortable moments. And it sounds fascinating. That's why it's actually my number four most anticipated movie of the summer, but it also does seem like it's going to make me cringe a lot. So Wiener and Wiener Dog coming out this summer. Wiener Dog is June 24. Wiener, just Wiener, spelled with an E-I instead of an I-E. That's May 20. May 20. <laughs> can, you, can you say Wiener one more time just for fun? Wiener. Thank you. And Solons. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to say I'm Wiener out. Dog makes is going to make you more uncomfortable. That's, that's my it guess. It has to, right? Yeah, yeah for sure. My number two question, can Ewan McGregor play Jesus and Satan? We Hmm. reference this because we have passes for the upcoming film Last Days in the Desert to give away when it does open. And I kind of know the answer to this because I was able to make a screening of this film last week. It's the Rodrigo Garcia picture, and it's dramatizing the final stretch of Jesus' 40 days in the desert. So McGregor's Jesus and then also the devil who's acting as his tempter here. Now, you weren't so high, Adam, on McGregor and Miles Ahead, no. which you saw and sort of wondered if this would be a redemption possibility well, for him. Well, juicier. It is. And no pun intended on redemption. It is. Well, <laughs> I got to tell you, it's probably his one of his best performances. Okay. Uh, it's really something. And uh, so I'm definitely going to say yes to that question you had and i hope we get a chance to review it on the show who knows we'll see what scheduling is but uh, everyone's going to get a chance to see this on may 13 okay. i'm not sure if it opens just here in chicago or wide but it will be rolling out soon okay i'm definitely interested in that film as well my number two is can woody allen win me back with cafe society a lot of his recent stuff, Josh, I haven't even bothered to see. To Rome with Love, Magic in the Moonlight. I knew you were going to make me see one of these, one of these Yeah, days. we may have I've to been, review I've a Woody Allen been, film. Like, I mean, Blue Jasmine. Qu- quietly letting them pass by. We did review Blue Jasmine, didn't we? Was that you? <laughs> I can't remember which co-host I that was. Think I think it was you. We did. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, I don't know. It's been a while, <laughs> and he makes together. them every three months, so well, we've does, skipped right? quite a few. He makes a movie a year, and he is in that five- to six-year range where he's due to make another good movie. <laughs> if you look back at IMDb, going back to Bullets Over Broadway, a great film, I think, in 1994, he then has five years before he makes another really good to great movie, Sweet and Lowdown, 99. Then it's another six years before Matchpoint in 2005. Then it's six years before Midnight in Paris in 2011, which I didn't love as much as most people did, but certainly more of a return to form for Woody. Now, the little wrinkle in my theory is that sandwiched in between those six years was Vicky Cristina Barcelona in 2008, which I also thought was a very good Woody Allen film. But then we were back to that five to six year gap where after Midnight in Paris, Maybe Cafe Society will be it. I know Blue Jasmine was it for a lot of people. I was much more mixed on that film. And I guess what really draws me in here, there's a bunch of things, actually. After watching the trailer, I'm more excited about it because it looks gorgeous. And 
he's working in a new realm here. He actually is shooting on digital for the first time in his career, and he's only made about 257 films. He's also working with Vittorio Storaro, the famed cinematographer who shot a lot of gorgeous Bertolucci stuff. He shot Apocalypse Now. He also shot a little Elaine May gem called Ishtar. Mm -hmm. And he tends to work with cinematographers over a long period of time. He'll pick one and work with them for five or six movies and then maybe move on to someone else. He hasn't worked with Storaro before, and I want to see what that collaboration does. Again, if you just look at the trailer, it's as gorgeous as any Woody Allen film hmm. I can think of. And part of that is it's set in the 1930s. It's a period piece set in Hollywood about a young New Yorker, Jesse Eisenberg, who moves out to Hollywood to try to find work in the movie business and gets caught up in the life of L.A. at the time and falls in love, as best I can tell, with Kristen Stewart. So it's a reteaming of the Adventureland right. duo there, the love interest there. Steve Carell also has a big part as kind of a mentor. I think he's related in some way to the Eisenberg character, and he's a player in Hollywood. I think he's an agent. It's the opening night Cannes film, which kicks off May 11th, and it's going to be released August 12th. Maybe Hail Caesar paved the way for another really good classic Hollywood film. Yeah, I was just thinking what if I end up liking Woody Allen's Hollywood film more than Terrence Malick's this year yeah. after being mixed on Night of Cups. So, all right, we'll check it out. My number one question, though, is was Inside Out a blip? Finding Dory's trailer has not won me over hmm. either of them. I've seen the most recent one, and it pretty much just repeats the short-term memory gag involving Dory from Finding Nemo. It doesn't really seem to offer another reason for being, um, not a new storyline. Basically, it seems to be that she remembers her family and wants to find them, so a journey film. Now, this is another Pixar sequel, and I've got to say, aside from the Toy Story series, sequels haven't been their strong suit when you think about Cars 2 or Monsters University. Inside Out from last year was a great return to form. It was an original concept, brilliantly executed, and universally beloved. Then came The Good Dinosaur, though, which we didn't really talk about, came out towards the end of the year. I did catch up with it, and found it to be an impressive technical achievement, especially in regard to the photorealism, but not much more than that. So you do have to wonder, was Inside Out an anomaly given their recent history? And that's a big question because Pixar used to be, it used to be one of those summer reliables, you know, one of the releases we could count on and look forward to each summer. And it would be really great to get back to those days, but I'm not so sure Finding Dory is going to be it. Yeah. Opens June 17. Okay. My number one goes back to the upcoming action buddy crime comedy, The Nice Guys. And my question is, will The Nice Guys elevate Ryan Gosling to comedic genius status? Hmm. Because if you look over his filmography, the parts that have gotten him the most acclaim are movies like Half Nelson, Blue Valentine, The Place Beyond the Pines, Drive. These are not movies with much humor in them, Josh, which doesn't mean he doesn't find ways to insert some levity and some of that cool charisma that we've all come to expect from Ryan Gosling, but they are heavy films. And if you go back to something like Lars and the Real Girl, that doesn't count for me because I don't think it's a particularly good film. Nor, oh, nor so do I, nor do I like his performance in that film. But here's where we split again. He really showed his comedic chops. Well, not that he needed to, because I think at this point he's capable of anything, but he really showed his comedic chops in the best film of last year, The Big Short. He and, was the best thing about The Big Short. Okay. We I can, agree with that. We can agree that he's at least very good in that film. And if you watch the Nice Guys trailer, 
it has a bit of physical comedy in it that kills me every time I see it. And I've seen this trailer about 15 times for whatever reason. It's just worked out that way. But it's a scene where after already being accosted and physically badly hurt by Russell Crowe in an earlier scene, Crowe finds him in a public toilet somewhere, it looks like. And this doesn't really translate to radio, probably not even the audio, but he's prepared for him this time. But when he opens the door, I mean, he's he's sitting on the toilet. He's got a cigarette in his mouth. He's holding a newspaper and a gun. And he's also trying to not be intimidated by Russell Crowe. And I just would love to know how many times they shot that, just how yeah. they got the actual physicality of dropping the cigarette, the gun, Kicking the door Kicking the door. (laughs) Everything he does in that scene is just pure genius. And if you just told me the premise of this film, I would probably not be that interested in it. But knowing that it's Shane Black, I did like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I think he made one of the better Marvel movies with Iron Man 3. And the chemistry he has with Crow in the trailer is legit. So May 20th, I think, Josh, is when we're going to finally start hailing Ryan Gosling as, I don't know, the next Chaplin or Keaton. Well, <laughs> getting a little carried away there, but maybe it does look probably a little bit of hyperbole. Those are our top five questions of the summer movie season. Josh, do you have any more? Well, the other films I was looking at, Money Monster, I think I mentioned at one point, this is the Jodie Foster film yeah. with Julia Roberts, George Clooney, and Jack O'Connell, who yeah. we love in a hostage drama. Boy, the trailer. Yikes. I mean, that thing okay, looks so really preachy. My first honorable mention question is... Will any movie be more insufferable than Money yeah, Monster? I mean, yeah. I knew it was going to be preachy and insufferable based on just hearing about it when I was like, oh, Jodie Foster made it. And as yeah, much as I like not, Clooney. She's not I, known as a, like a, I mean, her last film was The Beaver, right? This yeah, really weird she thing. She means well. And I that's Clooney, usually a good thing. I think but, Clooney is where you worry about things getting a little preachy. Bit, but, and, but the combination of them in a movie that's based off of sort of a Jim Cramer like character in the O'Connell character takes him hostage when something goes bad and then you watch the trailer and you see oh is this going to go the way i think it is where at some point they'll probably all be working together and they're all moved by his sad story well yeah that seems to be where it's going yeah. like there just there can't be any surprises to money monster no there is no way i'll see it yeah i'm kind of leaning that way too okay which is unfortunate all right let me mention two films that haven't come up at all but i think are worth putting on our radar under the sun which i first heard about on Film Spotting SVU. Alison Wilmore mentioned it. This is the documentary about North Korea that sounded very interesting. And also Sunset Song is a new film from Terrence Davies, who last made the gorgeous The Deep Blue Sea. Mm, good pick. I've got a few here. After Money Monster, can Duncan Jones make Warcraft watchable? A better question or more appropriate really would be, can Duncan Jones make it personal? Can he take something that is this huge cultural item and somehow not let it get away from him. Which eccentric leader documentary will I be brainwashed by? Holy hell or eat that question. Holy hell is a documentary about an actual cult leader. Eat that question. I'm stretching here a little bit to fit into my question, but eat that question is a documentary about Frank Zappa, who is certainly an enigmatic leader in okay. his own right. And people follow him a little bit. I like, like your wiener connection leader. better. I think it was better. It replaced that one, Josh, in my top five. <laughs> hey, you were joking about Michelle Gondry. Will Microbe and Gasoline bring me back to Michelle Gondry? After watching the trailer, probably not. 
What does a future without emotion look like, a.k.a. here's the snarky version, since when does Kristen Stewart actually act with emotion? This is the Drake Darima sci-fi movie that stars Kristen Stewart and Nicholas Holt as characters in a future that has outlawed human emotion. Hmm. I watched the trailer for this today. So everything's in white and very antiseptic and sleek. Gattaca or something like that. Yeah, and sort of like Nicholas Holt's character in that zombie movie where he's not human almost these people aren't human in a way right because they have no emotion whatsoever just stone face going through life they start to have these stirrings for each other obviously i wouldn't list it if it didn't sound like a pretty great premise my last two josh the question simply is why that's the question the movies are pete's dragon yeah finding dory and alice through the looking glass where i didn't like the previous alice movie I didn't really know the world was waiting for a follow-up to it. Oh, it made tons of money. Yeah, good point. But so what? No, <laughs> no, was, one, was, was no one was not, dying to it see it. It was not good. Pete's Dragon, a movie I love Who's for my that? childhood. I saw the cast and I was Robert like, Redford's in it? Yes. Yeah, Robert Redford's Very in random. it. Very random. I just also didn't know the world needed a remake of Pete's Dragon. And Finding Dory, it didn't look horrible to me when I saw the trailer over the weekend. It certainly didn't look horrible, but that same question. Why? Why? Oh, that's right. Exactly. Like, did we need this? So that's the why, honorable mention. Here's its counter. How? <laughs> How are they going to pull this off? And that's where I have Swiss Army Man. Okay. Like you. Tarzan? And, and no, Sausage Party. The Seth Rogen animated raunchy comedy. Oh, that's right. About a sausage that learns he will eventually become a meal. So he tries to warn his supermarket pals about their similar fate. Now, come on. Couldn't you have worked this into your wiener question? Oh, man. How did I miss that? <laughs> how did I miss the three wiener movies? Gosh. I should have asked for your help when making this list, Josh. Boy. <laughs> Again, those are our top five summer movie questions. Please send your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail at 312-264-0744. We might just feature it on an upcoming show. You can find Film Spotting on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at our website, filmspotting.net, you can find 11 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And if you haven't already, we encourage you to check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, Film Spotting SVU, and The Next Picture Show. You can find both in iTunes. Out in limited release, opening in Chicago this weekend, April in the Extraordinary World. This is a steampunk animated adventure featuring a young girl and and her talking cat. It's from France. We do know that the next picture shows Tasha Robinson gives it her recommendation. Excellent. I think we're taking the family to see it at the Siskel Center. Oh, Francophonia. This is the latest from Russian Arcs Alexander Sokorov, a meditation on art and history at the Louvre. Who doesn't love the Louvre? Sokorov, a filmmaker who came up on your most recent top five single location Single films location, that's right. For Russian Arc. I've only seen one Sokorov film, and it's not Russian Arc, so... We need to do some digging into his filmography. The Man Who Knew Infinity is out, starring Jeremy Irons and Dev Patel. If you were one of the film spotting listeners here in Chicago who won passes, let us know what you think. And Viva, this is a Havana-based story of a young man who dreams of being a drag performer. Another one we gave some passes out to. If you saw it, let us know what you thought. Out in wide release, it cannot be defeated. Captain America, Civil War, and we're okay with that. It gets all the theaters. All the theaters. And it's not a terrible thing. It's a pretty good movie. It was a lot of fun. There you go. Next week on the show, we are planning to discuss High Rise, starring Tom Hiddleston, and kick off our Nordic Cinema Marathon with songs from the second floor. 
Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week was by Besnard Lakes. You can find more information at thebesnardlakes.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Tell me briefly about Jungle Book. You tell me about Jungle Book. You Did saw you see it, it too. You saw it last weekend or a weekend before? Just this past weekend. Yeah. Same as you, right? What day? I wonder if we were in the same theater because it was packed. We were not in the same theater because I saw it a little bit more out of town. I was mm. with my sister and her kids and my wife and my kids. So a big group went and to see the Jungle Book. how did it go over? I really liked it. And it went over really well. I don't really care well. about you. I want to hear about the kids. <laughs> well, more importantly, the kids really <laughs> dug it, though. Connor, you know, the five-year-old, yeah. pretty soon to be six-year-old, he seemed like he was really into it. He was sitting on the other side of Sarah, so I couldn't see, but, you know, seemed to be looking at the screen the whole time, mm-hmm. had his attention focused. I thought he must have loved the movie. And then as soon as it got over, Sarah says to me that Connor multiple times had asked her, how many more minutes? Really? Now, he's also in that phase right now where everything is about how many more minutes. Like okay. every time we get in the car, doesn't matter where we're going. He's figuring out time. Yeah. He's he's always considering how much longer he has to sit somewhere. Was it the scariness factor too? Though? I don't know. He won't open up about it. He won't yeah. tell me what he thought oh. of it. But here's the thing. He, he won't say what he thought of it beyond Sarah tells me that. And then Sarah says that after asking all those times how much more was left – as soon as it ended, he turned to Sarah and said, hallelujah. <laughs> so I I'm guess he say didn't like he it. He was a little troubled by it. I guess he didn't a like it. A little bit. I think it was it was pretty intense. I mean, they they definitely went with the scary, angry, like really voracious animal. They could have played it a lot more cuddly. For sure. And I got into a debate. Because I always found the whole King Louis sequence a little disturbing. I remember as a kid in the animated original, and I said, well, when they were, they were like, that was so serious. That wasn't fun, that part. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, wasn't the original one was a little creepy, too. And they're like, no, what are you talking <laughs> So, of course, they pull it up on YouTube, and of course, it's not scary Man's at all. Fire. So I don't be creepy? I don't know why. I was just <laughs> creeped out by the dancing baboons when I was a kid. Um, but yeah, this is way more intense. Uh, I thought it was. I really thought it was quite wonderful, actually. Mm-hmm. What about your kids? They liked it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're older than Connor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was you know, bees in fourth grade is is a good age for this. I think um, Addie's probably a little old for it, but she liked it, and um, it was like a rainy day thing. It was you know, it was we weren't planning on going, and it was just torrential that day. So we're like, let's go check it out. And I mean, there's no, you can't even question the technological achievement behind it. Just I know. The, the, it's stunning. I mean, some of the animals come across better than others, but man, it's a high, it reminded me actually more of uh, Bambi, the way Bambi was able to use something that's clearly fake mm-hmm. and draw and sell animation, but just make it so naturalistic that you're just there. Yeah. And um, I think, I think this has a lot of moments like that and uh Uh, The kid is super charming. Yeah, it's funny because I saw a couple reviews on Letterboxd where people were questioning 
his acting skills like this was Jake Lloyd all over again or something and watch no way. defend him no, I, as not well. Even, I don't even defend Jake Lloyd. <laughs> yeah, the kid who plays Mowgli, Neil Sethi, I didn't look up how old he is. How old is he supposed to be here in this movie? What would you say? Nine? Nine, yeah. Eight, eight to ten, yeah. somewhere in that range. I really liked him. I do think it's fair to say that he doesn't act like a child actor, but he does act like a child. There are moments where he just seems to have the exuberance and the naivete, and he makes some of the goofy faces in response to things that my six- to eight-year-old kids would make. And I really like that, actually. And he runs with abandon, and he He leaps. He's a a great—you know, he jumps like a kid that age just jumping into the pool or something would do. Like, he's having fun. Well, I guess this is also probably true of Jake Lloyd, but— Let's not forget as well that the entire time, I don't know exactly how this movie was made, but he has to be acting against fake objects or objects the whole time. Oh, right? yeah. We looked we looked into it afterwards to try to figure it out. And how and hard is that? At one point, he's hugging like a supremely fake panther head that's comical. Right. And that's what he's acting with. Yeah. And then with Baloo, he's High like- High degree difficult. He's in a pool and John Favreau is like swimming in the pool next to him and he's just laying on like a furry board. There's like, that's what yeah. he's responding to. So yeah, yeah for that, I, you know, I thought he did great, but no, I really liked it. Yeah, I'm with you as well in terms of the effects and just how, for lack of a better word, real it felt. The only word I kept thinking of as I was watching it was tactile. For something that shouldn't feel sure. that way at yeah. all, you felt like you could touch these trees and touch these animals and that the universe that Favreau here created was legit. I like the way right from the beginning how he puts the camera. It makes sense. It's an obvious move, but he puts the camera at animal level. It's right. always down on the ground. Yeah. And that adds a sense as well that we're we're in it. We're with these characters and we've obviously touched on the animation. I thought the script was really good. The story was sound. I don't think it had any major holes or went in any directions it shouldn't have gone. Things pay off. And the voice work too. I mean, Ben oh, Kingsley yeah. is very good as you'd expect as Bagheera. I love Scarlett Johansson. Yet really? another, you yet another was... bit of great voice work from Scarlett Johansson as Ka. I, I loved it. I loved the female take on it. Yeah, her, her voice work is good. I think that was one of the animals that didn't render quite as clearly. Maybe because, you know, a snake that huge yeah. is, and there's a little bit with Christopher Watkins, orangutan too, is yeah. a little artificial. But um, yeah, Bill Murray, but that's a nice I think, touch, is though, great. On the old cartoon where those extremely fake animated eyes that that hypnotized yes. the kid. They found a new way to do that and make that seem that nice much touch. more authentic. Yeah, uh, Bill Murray's good. Walken's good. And Idris as Elba as Shere Khan, I think, was my so favorite good. vocal performance. Yeah. And this is coming from someone when Tasha Robinson and I did um, our top five Disney villains. I had Shere Khan as my number one. There you go. Um, I love so, the Jungle So yeah. that's a high bar uh, to meet for Idris Elba. And he was he was just so sinister and silky. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that... And menacing. Animation yeah. for that character, for Shere Khan, was probably the most realistic. I mean, just the way that tiger moved. And the thuds that they gave his pause when he would hit the ground mm-hmm. were almost as crucial as anything visual yeah. to make you believe that, you know, it's taking up space. Yeah, I'm with you. What else did you see? Um, so we watched Follow the Fleet in our Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, unofficial family marathon. And this is one that um, I don't know if it was the only influence for No Dames in Hail Caesar, the Channing Tatum sailor mm-hmm. sequence. But this is where Astaire is a sailor. And at one point, he does an entire sequence where he's commanding like uh, they're not a platoon in the Navy. I don't know what they are, but um, he's commanding like 20 guys just with his feet. Like he's tapping them directions. Mm-hmm. 
it's pretty amazing. On it's, on a scale of one to ten, ten being Hail Caesar, how homoerotic is it's it? It's not. You know, I didn't actually find it to be that sequence to be that homoerotic. So I don't know if there's another like old musical they're thinking of for that element of it. But yeah. just in terms of the formations of all these men in uniform, um, so that was a fun one. Not not one of our favorites. I think. Oh, now I'm forgetting his name. Is it Randolph Scott? There's like this Sounds kind right. of, yeah, he's been in two in a row now. He was in Roberta as well. And he's kind of supposed to be the handsome, charming, you know, matinee idol type. Because yeah. Astaire really isn't. But these days he just comes off as like a Neanderthal. Just like the way he talks to women and pursues them. He's He has not been going over well in my house. No. <laughs> no. Times have changed. House full of women. Times Unlike have changed. my house. Uh, but I, I reported to them, I, I think he's done. I don't think he's in any more Astaire. Rogers film, so hmm. so that's good for us. I saw Baby It's You, which we might talk about a little mm. bit during the show because it's an early sales film with Rosanna Arquette that I'm catching up with because I've been meeting to for a long time, but I'm actually doing an interview right. with sales. So I had to see that. I'll say more later, but definitely recommended. I finished, you'll love this. You will love this. Only you will really appreciate this. I finished Ant-Man over the weekend. I saw that too. Now, when I say Was I that your choice to be, to be a Marvel completist? No. Was that the only one left? No. Because you've seen Deadpool. I have seen Deadpool. I mean, you're really... I caught up with that. I was on a road trip. It was playing in my hotel room. I said, you know what? I'm not going to make it to the theater to see this. It's going to leave soon. I might as well watch it. I don't miss Marvel movies. Yeah, exactly. I don't miss any Marvel movie except Thor, The Dark World. I think that's the only one I haven't seen from the quote unquote Marvel Cinematic Universe. But I was on a flight like three months ago and movies were free. And I started watching Ant-Man and it's a pretty solid, I think, two hour movie. And the flight was only like an hour and 10 minutes. So I got an hour and 10 minutes in, maybe even more than that, about 80 minutes in. And of course the movie shuts down. So that was three months ago. And then over the weekend, I'm I'm flipping channels. I'm seeing what's available on demand and stuff. And Ant-Man's playing for free. Did I'm you like, watch the whole thing again or did you fast oh, come forward? come on. No, I fast forwarded to the... That's... I actually remember quite a bit of it. That time has expired between... No. You got to pick up at the beginning after three months. I would give I you... I don't play by your rules. I would give you three weeks. <laughs> I think after three weeks, That's your limit, you huh? need to start over. No. Okay? It's Otherwise, just you're not Man. doing justice it's to just Ant-Man. It's just Ant-Man, and I was able to finish it, and Ant-Man's pretty solid. It yeah. actually really is. Yeah. Did you see it? Yeah, I wasn't as big of a fan as I, I mean, expected to be. Oh, really? Well, I, I don't like I had no Ant expectations. So. The whole Ant-Man concept, see, this is a genius for Marvel mm -hmm. in general for me, is these really dumb ideas they've been able to sell me on, okay? Mm -hmm. Like, maybe we'll get into this, but Captain America's shield, that should not be as cool as it is, mm -hmm. right? And even Iron Man, you know, as a, as a kid, Iron Man seemed dumb. He, he just seemed like, you know, I don't know, a glorified mechanic or something, but they made that work. Yes. I don't even think they can really do Ant-Man. Huh. It's just kind of a dumb idea. Isn't it a dumb idea? Uh, I don't know. I thought it was executed as well as it could be. As a be. dumb idea could yeah, be. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do. And I think that, you know, it didn't help it that we all thought Edgar Wright was going to direct it. And we immediately thought it was going to yeah, be something right. truly wacky and goofy and absurd and would be much more creative than it ended up being. But I, I thought Peyton Reed managed the action and the drama and the humor pretty well. Sarah came in the room as I was finishing this movie and started watching it. And she asked the question again, kind of, what's going on here? Is this, it's the same question, actually, she asked <laughs> of the last is movie. Is this a comedy? Happened. She asked that. She's like, so is this supposed to be funny? I'm like, well, a little bit. I said, wait, there's one, there's one funny part coming up. And I only knew it was coming up, of course, because it's the funny part of the trailer. It's the funniest part of the trailer where it's the moment where they're fighting 
the wasp or whatever and the right. man and they're they're on the trains and stuff and then reed cuts back to what it would look like yes. from a person's perspective yeah. where That's... these trains just hit each other and and it's not dramatic or bombastic at all and sarah who i can't get to laugh at anything she loved laughed it. out loud she loved well it. she she laughed out loud she at least <laughs> chuckled at that moment so it worked for her in that moment it worked for me overall i, I like rudd too i thought he was pretty charming so you know, again, low expectations for that film. I thought it was fine. Okay. Also finished over the weekend. OJ, have you been watching this at all? Of course not. You know, I. It's, I, it's pretty digestible. I'm the guy who hasn't seen Bad Men or Breaking Bad. But there's only nine, and it's it's really good. It's it's weird. It's like the the camera work has been driving me nuts, and I haven't looked into how many different people were behind the directing, but it's this very like overwrought moving camera zoom in style, mm-hmm. but. The performance, I mean, the number of people you would never expect to be giving these great performances from Cuba Gooding Jr., David Schwimmer, mm-hmm. John Travolta. Yeah. I mean, I, it's just shocking how good they all are. And then plus other people who, you know, I haven't necessarily given up on um, who are just doing solid work. Too. Sarah Paulson. She, well, right. you would expect actress, her to be yeah. good. And she is. She's fantastic. Um, and um, but, man, just the way they decided to anchor everything around race and um, just started right out of the gate with that. And it's it's this through line that's just so resonant today. And also, um, they handle it really well throughout. Hmm. Um, it's it's only nine, and they're all like less than an hour. So you might be able to do it. It's it's like, you know, mm-hmm. one what? Watch one now. Watch one in September. Three months. Watch one in. That's allowable for a series. <laughs> oh, okay. So we're, yeah. we're changing I'll the give rules you as we go. I'll give you that. I like that. Okay. Well, I think... I've got Horace and Pete on tap before I get to OJ, the Louis C.K. series, but... Let me know if that's worth it. I will. 